Chapter 3 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 3 Their Place of Shelter. This curious but certainly correct explanation once given, the three friends returned to their slumbers. Could they have found a calmer or more peaceful spot to sleep in? On the earth, houses, towns, cottages, and country feel every shock given to the exterior of the globe. On sea, the vessels rocked by the waves are still in motion. In the air, the balloon oscillates incessantly on the fluid strata of diverse densities. This projectile alone, floating in perfect space, in the midst of perfect silence, offered perfect repose. Thus the sleep of our adventurous travellers might have been indefinitely prolonged, if an unexpected noise had not awakened them at about seven o'clock in the morning of the 2nd of December, eight hours after their departure. This noise was a very natural barking. "'The dogs! It is the dogs!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, rising at once. "'They are hungry,' said Nicol. "'By Jove!' replied Michel. "'We have forgotten them!' "'Where are they?' asked Barbicane. They looked and found one of the animals crouched under the divan. Terrified and shaken by the initiatory shock, it had remained in the corner till its voice returned with the pangs of hunger.' It was the amiable Diana, still very confused, who crept out of her retreat, though not without much persuasion, Michel Ardin encouraging her with most gracious words. "'Come, Diana,' said he, "'come, my girl, thou whose destiny will be marked in the Synegetic annals, thou whom the pagans would have given as companion to the god Anubis, and Christians as friend to saint Roch. Thou who art rushing into interplanetary space, and wilt perhaps be the eve of all selenite dogs. Come, Diana, come here. Diana, flattered or not, advanced by degrees, uttering plaintive cries. Good, said Barbicane. I see Eve, but where is Adam? Adam, replied Michel, Adam cannot be far off. He is there somewhere. We must call him. Satellite! Here, satellite! But satellite did not appear. Diana would not leave off howling. They found, however, that she was not bruised, and they gave her a pie which silenced her complaints. As to satellite, he seemed quite lost. They had to hunt a long time before finding him in one of the upper compartments of the projectile, whither some unaccountable shock must have violently hurled him. The poor beast, much hurt, was in a piteous state. "'The devil!' said Michel. They brought the unfortunate dog down with great care. Its skull had been broken against the roof, and it seemed unlikely that he could recover from such a shock. Meanwhile he was stretched comfortably on a cushion. Once there he heaved a sigh. "'We will take care of you,' said Michel. We are responsible for your existence. I would rather lose an arm than a paw of my poor satellite. Saying which, he offered some water to the wounded dog, 
who swallowed it with avidity. This attention paid, the travellers watched the earth and the moon attentively. The earth was now only discernible by a cloudy disk ending in a crescent, rather more contracted than that of the previous evening, but its expanse was still enormous compared with that of the moon, which was approaching nearer and nearer to a perfect circle. "'By Jove!' said Michel Ardin. "'I am really sorry that we did not start when the earth was full, that is to say, when our globe was in opposition to the sun.' "'Why?' asked Nicholl. "'Because we should have seen our continents and seas in a new light, the first resplendent under the solar rays, the latter cloudy as represented on some maps of the world. I should like to have seen those poles of the earth on which the eye of man has never yet rested.' "'I dare say,' replied Barbicane, "'but if the earth had been full, the moon would have been new, that is to say, invisible, because of the rays of the sun. It is better for us to see the destination we wish to reach than the point of departure.' "'You are right, Barbicane,' replied Captain Nicholl, "'and besides, when we have reached the moon, we shall have time during the long lunar nights to consider at our leisure the globe on which our likenesses swarm.' "'Our likenesses!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'They are no more our likenesses than the Selenites are. We inhabit a new world, peopled by ourselves, the projectile. I am Barbicane's likeness, and Barbicane is Nichols. Beyond us, around us, Human nature is at an end, and we are the only population of this microcosm until we become pure selenites. In about eighty-eight hours, replied the captain. Which means to say, asked Michel Ardin, that it is half-past eight, replied Nicholl. Very well, retorted Michel. Then it is impossible for me to find even the shadow of a reason why we should not go to breakfast. Indeed, the inhabitants of the new star could not live without eating, and their stomachs were suffering from the imperious laws of hunger. Michel Ardin, as a Frenchman, was declared chief cook, an important function which raised no rival. The gas gave sufficient heat for the culinary apparatus, and the provision box furnished the elements of this first feast. The breakfast began with three bowls of excellent soup— thanks to the liquefaction in hot water of those precious cakes of Liebig, prepared from the best parts of the ruminants of the pompous. To the soup succeeded some beefsteaks, compressed by an hydraulic press, as tender and succulent as if brought straight from the kitchen of an English eating-house. Michel, who was imaginative, maintained that they were even red. Preserved vegetables— "'Fresher than nature,' said the amiable Michel, "'succeeded the dish of meat, "'and was followed by some cups of tea "'with bread and butter after the American fashion. "'The beverage was declared exquisite "'and was due to the infusion of the choicest leaves, "'of which the Emperor of Russia had given some chests "'for the benefit of the travellers. "'And lastly, to crown the repast, "'Ardin brought out a fine battle of Nuit, which was found by chance in the provision-box. The three friends drank to the union of the earth and her satellite. 
and as if he had not already done enough for the generous wine which he had distilled on the slopes of Burgundy, the son chose to be of the party. At this moment the projectile emerged from the conical shadow cast by the terrestrial globe, and the rays of the radiant orb struck the lower disk of the projectile direct, occasioned by the angle which the moon's orbit makes with that of the earth. "'The sun!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'No doubt,' replied Barbicane. "'I expected it.' "'But,' said Michel, "'the conical shadow which the earth leaves in space extends beyond the moon.' "'Far beyond it, if the atmospheric refraction is not taken into consideration,' said Barbicane. But when the moon is enveloped in this shadow, it is because the centers of the three stars, the sun, the earth, and the moon, are all in one and the same straight line. Then the nodes coincide with the phases of the moon, and there is an eclipse. If we had started when there was an eclipse of the moon, all our passage would have been in the shadow, which would have been a pity. Why? Because, though we are floating in space, our projectile, bathed in the solar rays, will receive their light and heat. It economizes the gas, which is in every respect a good economy. Indeed, under these rays, which no atmosphere can temper, either in temperature or brilliancy, the projectile grew warm and bright, as if it had passed suddenly from winter to summer. The moon above, the sun beneath, were inundating it with their fire. "'It is pleasant here,' said Nicholl. "'I should think so,' said Michel Ardin. "'With a little earth spread on our aluminum planet, we shall have green peas in twenty-four hours. I have but one fear, which is that the walls of the projectile might melt.' "'Calm yourself, my worthy friend,' replied Barbicane. The projectile withstood a very much higher temperature than this as it slid through the strata of the atmosphere. I should not be surprised if it did not look like a meteor on fire to the eyes of the spectators in Florida. But then Joseph T. Maston will think we are roasted. What astonishes me, said Barbicane, is that we have not been. That was a danger we had not provided for. I feared it said Nicholl, simply. "'And you never mentioned it, my sublime captain!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, clasping his friend's hand. Barbicane now began to settle himself in the projectile, as if he was never to leave it. One must remember that this aerial car had a base with a superficies of fifty-four square feet. Its height to the roof was twelve feet. Carefully laid out in the inside— and little encumbered by instruments and travelling utensils, which each had their particular place, it left the three travellers a certain freedom of movement. The thick window, inserted in the bottom, could bear any amount of weight, and Barbicane and his companions walked upon it as if it were solid plank. But the sun, striking it directly with its rays, lit the interior of the projectile from beneath, thus producing singular effects of light. They began by investigating the state of their store of water and provisions, neither of which had suffered, thanks to the care taken to deaden the shock. Their provisions were abundant, and plentiful enough to last the three travellers for more than a year. 
Barbicane wished to be cautious, in case the projectile should land on a part of the moon which was utterly barren. As to water and the reserve of brandy, which consisted of fifty gallons, there was only enough for two months, but according to the last observations of astronomers, the moon had a low, dense, and thick atmosphere, at least in the deep valleys, and there springs and streams could not fail. Thus, during their passage, and for the first year of their settlement on the lunar continent, these adventurous explorers would suffer neither hunger nor thirst. Now about the air in the projectile. There, too, they were secure. Ricet and Reynaud's apparatus, intended for the production of oxygen, was supplied with chloride of potassium for two months. They necessarily consumed a certain quantity of gas, for they were obliged to keep the producing substance at a temperature of above 400 degrees. But there again they were all safe. The apparatus only wanted a little care. But it was not enough to renew the oxygen. They must absorb the carbonic acid produced by expiration. During the last twelve hours the atmosphere of the projectile had become charged with this deleterious gas. Nicholl discovered the state of the air by observing Diana panting painfully. The carbonic acid, by a phenomenon similar to that produced in the famous Grotto del Cane, had collected at the bottom of the projectile owing to its weight. Poor Diana, with her head low, would suffer before her masters from the presence of this gas. But Captain Nicholl hastened to remedy this state of things, by placing on the floor several receivers containing caustic potash, which he shook about for a time, and this substance, greedy of carbonic acid, soon completely absorbed it, thus purifying the air. An inventory of instruments was then begun. The thermometers and barometers had resisted all but one minimum thermometer, the glass of which was broken. An excellent aneroid was drawn from the wadded box which contained it and hung on the wall. Of course it was only affected by and marked the pressure of the air inside the projectile, but it also showed the quantity of moisture which it contained. At that moment its needle oscillated between 25.24 and 25.08. It was fine weather. Barbicane had also brought several compasses, which he found intact. One must understand that under present conditions their needles were acting wildly, that is, without any constant direction. Indeed, at the distance they were from the earth, the magnetic pole could have no perceptible action upon the apparatus. But the box placed on the lunar disk might perhaps exhibit some strange phenomena. In any case, it would be interesting to see whether the Earth's satellite submitted, like herself, to its magnetic influence. A hypsometer to measure the height of the lunar mountains, a sextant to take the height of the sun, glasses which would be useful as they neared the moon, all these instruments were carefully looked over, and pronounced good in spite of the violent shock. As to the pickaxes and different tools which were Nichols' especial choice, as to the sacks of different kinds of grain and shrubs which Michel Ardin hoped to transplant into selenite ground, they were stowed away in the upper part of the projectile. 
There was a sort of granary there, loaded with things which the extravagant Frenchmen had heaped up. What they were no one knew, and the good-tempered fellow did not explain. Now and then he climbed up by cramp-irons riveted to the walls, but kept the inspection to himself. He arranged and rearranged. He plunged his hand rapidly into certain mysterious boxes, singing in one of the falsest of voices an old French refrain to enliven the situation. Barbicane observed with some interest that his guns and other arms had not been damaged. These were important, because, heavily loaded, they were to help to lessen the fall of the projectile, when drawn by the lunar attraction, after having passed the point of neutral attraction, onto the moon's surface, a fall which ought to be six times less rapid than it would have been on the earth's surface, thanks to the difference of bulk. The inspection ended with general satisfaction, when each returned to watch space through the side windows and the lower glass cover lid. There was the same view. The whole extent of the celestial sphere swarmed with stars and constellations of wonderful purity, enough to drive an astronomer out of his mind. On one side the sun, like the mouth of a lighted oven, a dazzling disk without a halo, standing out on the dark background of the sky. On the other, the moon returning its fire by reflection, and apparently motionless in the midst of the starry world. Then, a large spot seemingly nailed to the firmament, bordered by a silvery cord. It was the earth. Here and there nebulous masses like large flakes of starry snow, and from the zenith to the nadir, an immense ring formed by an impalpable dust of stars, the Milky Way, in the midst of which the sun ranks only as a star of the fourth magnitude. The observers could not take their eyes from this novel spectacle, of which no description could give an adequate idea. What reflections it suggested! What emotions hitherto unknown awoke in their souls! Barbicane wished to begin the relation of his journey while under its first impressions, and hour after hour took notes of all facts happening in the beginning of the enterprise. He wrote quietly, with his large square writing, in a business-like style. During this time Nicol, the calculator, looked over the minutes of their passage, and worked out figures with unparalleled dexterity. Michel Ardin chatted first with Barbicane, who did not answer him, and then with Nicol, who did not hear him, with Diana, who understood none of his theories, and lastly with himself, questioning and answering, coming and going, busy with a thousand details, at one time bent over the lower glass, at another roosting in the heights of the projectile, and always singing." In this microcosm he represented French loquacity and excitability, and we beg you to believe that they were well represented. The day, or rather, for the expression is not correct, the lapse of twelve hours, which forms a day upon earth, closed with a plentiful supper carefully prepared. No accident of any nature had yet happened to shake the traveller's confidence. So, full of hope, Already sure of his success, they slept peacefully, 
whilst the projectile under a uniformly decreasing speed was crossing the sky. End of chapter.